want to begin our topic this morning by talking to you about graveyards. Just what you were looking for today in an uplifting sermon, I'm sure. Well, I like graveyards. I like graveyards because they make me feel uncomfortable and I typically don't like it that I'm there. But there's something I like about feeling uncomfortable because it makes me think about my own mortality. It makes me think about the shortness of my own life. It makes me think about the fact that someday they're going to put my body in the ground and they're all going to leave. But what I particularly like about graveyards is I like going to graveyards where there are people buried whom I admire. I like going to the graveyards where people are buried who've made a significant impact for the glory of Christ. Maybe it's just because I've read about them before and I can think about how they really were real people and this is where they lived and did ministry and yes, this is where they died and they were buried. Places like Northampton, Massachusetts where David Brainerd is buried, the famous missionary. Or Bunhill Fields where the the nonconformist preachers were buried of England Day like John Bunyan or John Owen. My favorite so far has been Princeton Cemetery. I almost said Princeton uh, Seminary because they are one and the same anymore. But Princeton Cemetery has been my favorite because there you are walking uh, around and seeing things and you'll see Charles Hodge is buried there and and B.B. Warfield is buried there and yes, Jonathan Edwards is buried there. It's got to be my favorite so far. Probably the most particular or the most, uh, the, the most odd is where George Whitfield is buried. Uh, he's uh, buried in Massachusetts as well, but he's not buried in a cemetery. He's buried under the pulpit in a Presbyterian church. And uh, that's kind of an, an odd thing to think about as, as far as history goes. Presbyterians typically haven't done that. Uh, Anglicans have. But since he was an Anglican and he was in America... To honor him, they buried him under the pulpit. It's going to be hard to do if you want to do that for me. But, uh, but here's the thing. Without exception, almost, almost without exception, every single one of those individuals who founded, led, taught at these great theological institutions, these great churches. They were a part of such great Christ-exalting movements, almost without exception. Those churches, institutions, and movements are dead themselves. That really troubles me. And I can't get it out of my mind. Maybe it's because I was just at a couple of graveyards on this last trip that we were on. And, and, and it just starts getting me thinking. of thinking about how, how, how great an impact these individuals had and how much I admired their impact and I admired them. And then before you know it, you're thinking, not only are they dead, the movements they were a part of, the churches they founded, they're dead. I can't get it out of my mind. And so this morning, I want to talk about the death of a church. The death of a church. It's on my heart. It's on my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. But on the, at the same time, uh, to be quite honest with you, we're at Romans 5.12 right now. It's a good stopping place. And since Romans 5.12 has been considered and counted the hardest verse in the entire Bible to interpret, I need more time. 
So, two birds with one stone. I want to do service to Romans 5.12, so I'm spending my extra time studying that. But at the same time, it's a good, uh, in God's providence, outlet for us to talk about this matter of the death of a church. If history repeats itself, Omaha Bible Church will one day be a dead church. I went to the Master Seminary, and I loved it there, and I would recommend that others go there. But when I went there, one of my most esteemed professors said, who was a historian, he said, come while you can, because if history repeats itself, and it will, this too will be a dead institution. And so here we are at Omaha Bible Church discouraged by certain things no doubt but encouraged by other things and God has done some significant things that he should be glorified for and and I'm pretty excited about that but to stop and think that this will be a dead institution someday more than likely troubles me but it also motivates me as you can tell by the wringing of my hands it motivates me. I think, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to play a part in it. I want to do what I possibly can and, and try to encourage you and help you to do what you possibly can by the grace of God to have at least not die on our watch or to have us not perpetuate or contribute to something that's going to, going to expedite its death. And so as we talk about the death of a church, it seems that there are a number of assumptions that churches and institutions make that sort of put the writing on the wall. Assumptions that churches and institutions make that, that, that kind of give the, if you will, the, they give off the aroma of embalming fluid. I want to look at one of the assumptions today, and that's assuming the gospel. Assuming the gospel. I'm not sure how... We'll look at this next week as well, but I'm not sure how much time we'll give at different things. We won't talk about it today, but I would also like to talk about assuming theology as something that gives the smell of embalming fluid to a church. Assuming doxology, assuming the glory of God, assuming biblicity. And we'll look at at least some of those, if not all of those, in the days ahead. But today, let's just talk about assuming the gospel. Those great institutions that I admire so much historically, they were committed, they were passionate about the gospel. And what didn't happen is they didn't just, in a day's time, deny the gospel like they do now. Something happens in between being committed to, devoted to, and denying it implicitly or explicitly. And what I would suggest to you is what happens in the middle in one way or another is we assume it. We get to that place where, yes, we were once devoted to it and to proclaiming it, defending it, promoting it, all of this. And what happens in the middle is is somewhere along the way we just assume the gospel. And before you know it, whether it's us or those who came after us, they're denying it. And thus we have the death of a church. So as we do this this morning, and we look at this death of a church issue, let's talk about a number of ways that we would assume the gospel. Different ways that we would assume the gospel. Not extensive by any means, not inspired by any means. In some ways it makes me nervous not being in one passage of Scripture because I feel like I'm giving you too many of my thoughts and not enough of God's thoughts. 
but I think this is historic, historically accurate, and we'll look at a number of different texts uh, and, and, and be able to hang our thoughts on those texts. Some of you are thinking we need to keep the pastor in, away from graveyards. <laughs> He's far too serious today. I think actually it's pretty good. I'm maybe going to pray that you start going to graveyards <laughs> and pray that you, you read church history if you don't. Folks, we only have so much time, right? The clock is ticking. and we, we are going to leave a legacy of some kind or another. And we are in the midst of leaving that legacy right now. This is serious stuff. Troubling stuff. And I hope you feel troubled if need be. Well, one sign of assuming the gospel, number one, which seems to give this aroma of death, is downplaying conversion. I think we can do this one rather quickly, but I do want to make sure that we cover it. And it's downplaying conversion. If you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn to Matthew 18. And we'll hear from Jesus regarding this, this issue of conversion. But as you're turning to Matthew 18, what, what we do see happening historically is where you have a dead institution, you have an institution that does not emphasize conversion. Conversion is like this this foreign concept, converting to Christ. That's a dead institution. Well, I think what gets us there to that point where these institutions started proclaiming the gospel, believing that people needed to be confirmed to have the hope of heaven, they, they were there, they understood that. But somewhere along the line, they assumed the gospel. They weren't emphasizing conversion. And now, conversion? What do you mean, conversion? But let's go back to what Jesus said first before we talk about it uh, in, in our sense. And let's just see how important conversion is. In Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, so seriously, with great significance and importance and sobriety, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've looked at that in detail before. We've spent a whole hour probably just on that verse and maybe even more. So we're not going to redo that. But there's no question about the fact that conversion is important. Because Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord who bought the church and owns it, says, unless you are converted, unless you do a spiritual 180, you you won't see the light of day in heaven, in effect, is what he's saying. So it doesn't matter what you're associated with. It doesn't matter what religious heritage you have. He, he, he's putting everyone on notice that everyone needs to be converted. We're not, we're not born Christians. We're, we're, we're not born right with God. We, we are sinners by nature. Therefore, we must be converted. This is crucial for us. And many of you who, who are first-generation Christians... You understand this, or at least you used to. You were converted. You went off to university or whatever your story might be. We all have different stories and of our conversion. But if you've been converted, especially if you're a first-generation Christian, you, you remember that. Not in those of you who are second, third, fourth, fifth, and all that uh, understand this as well. But I specifically want to talk to you, those of you who are first-generation Christians, you understand this. Maybe you understand it better than those who are not first-generation Christians. You weren't raised in a Christian home, Christian background, all this. You were converted. You trusted in Christ and it was radical and it was extreme and it was a spiritual 180. 
You get this. But here's the thing. Are you still thinking that way now that you are a Christian parent? Or are you assuming the gospel by thinking your kids are in because you're in? And those of you who aren't first generation Christians, now you understand why I wanted to emphasize just them. Do we assume the gospel? Do do, do we assume the gospel by thinking somehow conversion is just for granted or maybe just ignored altogether and we're not proclaiming the gospel, emphasizing the gospel, understanding that even the new birth that happens that leads to conversion is a sovereign act of the Spirit of God according to John chapter 3 and it's not something that happens just because of biology, just because we're in a certain country, born in the USA. That doesn't get us there. You must be converted. No matter who you are, no matter who your parents are. But when we forget this, what ends up happening is we start forgetting about the gospel because we're assuming the gospel. Instead of preaching the gospel to our our children, instead of preaching the gospel to our friends who are fellow Americans, instead of preaching the gospel to our fellow conservatives or liberals, whichever one you are, instead of realizing and feeling the burden that everyone must be converted or there will be no heaven, well, we lose sight of this when we assume the gospel. We're all Americans, or you're part of my family, and after all, I am a preacher. Or, or, you know, we go to Omaha Bible Church now, and you've gone through all the children's programs, and so on and so forth. We're assuming the gospel when we're not emphasizing conversion. And there's an aroma in the air. And the aroma is embalming fluid. It's not good. We need to take these words of Jesus to heart. We need to think historically as well. No one is born a Christian. People don't become Christians when they reach a certain age, the infamous age of accountability. We want our children to become Christians. We want our friends, our fellow Americans to become Christians. But notice the emphasis on become Christians. Look at these institutions over and over again. They have a great heritage. They've got these great documents that they've produced. And before you know it, they start assuming the gospel. And before you know it, they're not evangelizing other people. And before you know it, the organization has no pulse because Christianity by definition, is a converting religion. Got to remember that. Let's move to another sign of assuming the gospel. Therefore, headed down the path of church death, and that is gospel ignorance. Gospel ignorance. What I mean by that is just ignorance of the gospel itself. Now that seems kind of silly. It seems kind of like a waste of time. Why don't we get back to Romans, Pat? Because, you know, uh, gospel ignorance, I mean, this, this is Omaha Bible Church. Case in point, I mean, you know, the gospel is the power of God unto what? Come on. 
Salvation, you know, 90% of you could finish that. That's Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We know that well enough. It's emphasized enough that if you weren't so sleepy, you, 90% of you would say, salvation. I mean, it's Romans. And, and we're, we're, we're studying Romans. And, 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 and it's gospel, gospel, gospel. It, it seems silly to suggest that we would ever be ignorant of the gospel. Seems silly. That seems absolutely silly. But let me ask you what is the gospel? I'll do what Pastor Mark Dever does. You tell me the gospel in one minute or less. Can you do that? Or what if next Sunday in the junior high department, if you have a child in there, Matt Holloway says, I would like you now one-on-one to tell me the gospel in one minute. What is your son or daughter going to say? Probably what you taught them. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is... uh, the Bible. That's a, that's a real answer. It's been given in this building. Uh, the gospel is uh, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's an answer given in this building. I've heard people say the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that in this building, but you know... <laughs> Could you tell me what the gospel even is? You're saying it's silly you bring up an assumed gospel because in this whole business about, about, about us being ignorant of the gospel, of course we know what the gospel is. Go to the bookstore. We've got book after book after book about the gospel. The pastor's preaching through Romans. Not only that, I mean, we, we've got classes on this kind of stuff. But what I'm saying to you is, can you articulate the gospel in a minute? And let me give you a hint. The gospel is not, I try to follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's in the gospels. The gospel is that God saves sinners. That God saves sinners. That God declares sinners righteous even though they're not. Based upon the fact that Jesus came and lived for us. A perfect life because we couldn't. And then He died a sinner's death and and absorbed the wrath of God. And you can put it in your own words. He rose again from the dead. If you believe in Him, you'll be saved. There's the Gospel. I didn't even have to look at my notes. You didn't have to go to seminary. Okay? That's the Gospel. But some of you don't know the Gospel. And this is Omaha Bible Church. And who knows how many times I've said that. And how many classes and on and on and on and on and on and on. It is really easy for us to be ignorant of the gospel. Frighteningly so. And if we're ignorant of the gospel as professing Christians, something is really, really, really wrong. 
And that scent in the air is embalming fluid because we're assuming the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. Another very familiar passage that should help you to know what the gospel is, which is not our emphasis today. Our emphasis today is to, to avoid having this church die in this time, if we possibly can. The gospel is, is crucial. The gospel is critical. We can't assume it, and we show we are assuming it when we don't even know what it is. 1 Corinthians 15 is just a classic text, but let's make sure we're thinking about what it says. Now, I, in verse 1, now I, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which you have also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And then verse 3, which is you know, going to be the, the drum that we just keep hammering, I hope, until uh, we breathe our last. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So there's Him dying in our place. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you've got belief before that. You really have the gospel there, but that's not really what I wanted to show you. I wanted to show you, He's saying, this is the most important thing in the whole world. And we know that, but then what we do is we assume it. And we can't even articulate it. I would encourage you to join me in this, this endeavor of asking people what the gospel is. Typically what I will do when I talk to somebody, it just happened this week, um, somehow they find out what it is I do or whatever. They were from a different country and I said, you know what, I've not been to that country. I'd like to go to your country, uh, the country you're from. Uh, I get to travel some and, and I'm looking forward to going there someday. Oh, what is it that you do? Oh, I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, and blah, 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 blah. They say, oh, really? You know, this is great. You know, I prayed about this this for, for to meet a Christian today. And, and I, with, almost without exception, say, oh, are you a Christian? And then they're almost like offended, you know. <laughs> well, I just showed enthusiasm. Of course I'm a Christian, you know. What do you think I am, a communist? Or I mean, I, I mean it's just like an insult almost, but I, I just, I just want to see where that will go in conversation. Oh, you're a Christian? Instead of assuming everyone is a Christian who shows any interest in religion or whatever. But then to follow it up with another question. Could you tell me the gospel? And you know, if that feels too awkward and confrontational, you can say, you know what's interesting is, my, you know what my pastor says to people? <laughs> he says, you know what? Can you tell me what the gospel is in a minute or less? Blame me. I don't care. But it's going to trouble you because you are going to hear all kinds of things. And if you hear all kinds of things here, I guarantee you you're going to hear all kinds of things when you're at the fast food restaurant. Can you tell me what the gospel is? Follow Jesus. You know, whatever. It's a good thing. The Bible, that's a good thing. It's not the gospel. We need to make sure we don't assume the gospel by being ignorant of what the gospel even is. Let's move on to another sign of assuming the gospel, which is a sign of, of coming death. And that is 
confusing good advice with good news. Confusing good advice with good news. I know I've talked about this a little bit before, but there's always new folks coming, and I would like to emphasize this until my dying day. Here's what I'm talking about. We're assuming the gospel when we confuse good advice, and by good advice I even mean things the Bible tells us to do, which means it's more than good advice, but but to keep it in your mind, I'm going to call it good advice. Things you are supposed to do, good advice, with good news. The gospel, what has been done already for you. Okay? Good advice, what you're supposed to do. A command. Good news, what Christ already did on your behalf. When we confuse these two, which is sadly too easy to do and happens too often, what we're doing is we're confusing the gospel... And even though we might have a great gospel statement in our constitution or our doctrinal statement or our creed or our confession, we're assuming that gospel because we're busy over here confusing gospel and good advice. Gospel, good advice and good news. Please think about this and I think you'll see that this is indeed a problem. And it's something that, that, that should warn us and cause us to be frightened that, that something's not just wrong, but, but, but something is wrong even that was going to lead to tragedy in the church. Historically, this is what has happened to Protestant liberalism. Okay? You go to all these dead churches. They've got a great-looking building, a great history in the cemetery, but no life now. Historically, this is what has happened. They confuse good advice with good news or they, 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 they emphasize the good advice over the good news. Let me, let me give a couple of technical, more technical words to say it another way, not to overwhelm you. It's, they're actually, it's an easy way to remember it. And some, some good Bible teachers have come up with this, so I'm borrowing it from them. It's when we confuse indicative, something that's done, with imperative, Something you must do. I think these words are worth learning because it will help you understand this. Indicative, something that's happened. Gospel good news. Christ died for our sins. Rose again from the dead. Indicative. Gospel. Imperative. You should... You fill in the blank. You must, you fill in the blank. And there's a lot of things that that, that are spoken of in those terms that are important and good. Please don't misunderstand. And now let me draw upon some scripture. I'm not going to look at any one particular verse, so you could turn to Romans 1 to 5 if it makes you feel better, but you don't have to. We're going to look at the whole Without looking at the particular grammar, just an idea, okay? Romans 1 to 5 has been indicative. 
It's been gospel, good news that's happened outside of you as far as really Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5. But, but Romans 1 to 5, let's say this, this is what Christ has done. He has propitiated the wrath of God. That's indicative. That's, that's gospel. It has nothing to do with your performance. It's then later that we have, okay, in light of that and what he's done, here's what you need to do now that you're saved. And maybe, and this is overgeneralizing, I know, but maybe the, 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 the clearest way to see it is, in a general sense, you've got Romans 1 to 11 is very much indicative. Romans 6 is going to talk about what we're supposed to do, but really it's, it's tied uh, to what Christ has done for us. In Romans 7, there's the struggle there that's there, but, but it's tied to what Christ has done for us, or there would be no struggle. Romans 8 is security, all of what Christ has done, sovereignty of God and those things. Just generalizing, Romans 1 to 11, we've got indicative. This is what's happened for us. Isn't this amazing? And then, based upon that, we have imperative, Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the indicative, okay? In light of Romans 1 to 11, I urge you to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Yes, there's a place for the imperative. It's essential. It's vital. You need to do these things, but it's based upon and always based upon this great emphasis on good news of what has been done outside of you for you. And when we confuse the two, it doesn't matter what our doctrinal statement says. It doesn't matter what kind of books we have in our bookstore. It doesn't matter how what the pastor's preaching. If we confuse these two, what's happening is we are assuming the gospel. And really what we're doing is we're showing signs of death. Because over and over again, this has been the death of the church or death of churches. In his classic book that I think every Christian should read, I think you can get it for free on the internet now, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen made the point that, if you'd listen... I'll quote him, here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism, he means religious liberalism, dead churches, and Christianity. Okay, what is it? You have my interest. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. While Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. It's crucial that we get this. I would encourage you to start watching. Start paying attention. Start start listening to sermon outlines. Seven ways to do this. Fourteen principles to have a... Methods for, it's imperative, 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 imperative. What you must do, what you must do, what you must do. And there's a place for all of that if it is built upon and tied to the great indicative of the cross and what Christ has done. And that's the source of our power and the source of our Christian living. But more often than not, the preacher is silent. giving you the imperative which is a sign of a dead church no matter what their doctrinal statement says 
Historically, that's what it is. And we are seeing it all around us. It's absolutely amazing. We just look like the liberalism of 80 years ago or 100 years ago. I remember studying Matthew. I felt this tremendous kind of internal pressure, and I feel it all the time in preaching because I know all scriptures applicable. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all profitable. Okay? And not only that, I know I'm supposed to exhort in preaching. That's a mandate. 2 Timothy 4. So I feel this pressure. I'm preaching through Matthew's gospel, and it's a historical narrative about what Jesus did. It's indicative. Okay? But I know that there's always application and there's always opportunity for exhortation. And so I would feel the struggle because I need to do this. What was framed for me is to be able to say over and over again to you, not, well, you know, there are seven principles here for greater faith. If we just, you know, do a better job at focusing on the resurrection, you too can have resurrected life. I was so freed to not do that. Because that's not the intention of the passage. And that's not the intention of Christianity. That's not it at all. To be able to say over and over again, week in and week out, you know what the application here is, folks? The application is, Jesus is great. You should worship Him. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus gives life. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus has power over demons. You should live to glorify Him. And you say, well, yeah, but that's not really application. You want to fight about it? <laughs> that's the best application. Stop and think how stupid it is for us to say that's not application. The greatest thing you can do in life is glorify God. It is indeed the chief end of man. It is indeed what the Bible tells us we should do in everything that we do. So for me to tell you for the rest of my life, no application today, folks, other than, you know, worship Jesus because he's worthy of it. You should be saying, that's a good pastor. He is doing the chief end of all pastoring, right? That is, that's exactly right. Now, that's overstating it because there are also imperatives in Scripture and we, we say here are principles for this and you must do this. But again, if that is very far removed from that greater emphasis in the foundation which is the cross, there is something horribly wrong. And I'm over time and just feeling the love right now and you guys don't care. So one more thing about that. <laughs> This is why I get so exercised, maybe even especially lately, about characters. You know, character study this and character study that. and You know, there's a place for it, yes. But please, please remember if it's, oh, here's seven ways you can have greater blah, blah, blah by focusing on Abraham. I'm like, come on already. The reason Abraham is in Romans 4 is because he's unrighteous. Hello? And so he gained righteousness by faith because he was unrighteous. Stop trying to be like Abraham. Other than acknowledging that you're unrighteous and you believe in God. That's why we have Romans 4. Okay? The big hitters are in Romans 4, Abraham and David. They're both unrighteous. They needed to believe so they could have righteousness. Stop, stop. (laughs) Or we're giving off the smell of death because we're just looking like liberalism of 80 years ago. And then, for fear of, of 
losing my job. You can put Jesus on the list too. Please hear me out. Don't quote me out of context. We confuse good news with good advice when we say the gospel is or we put all of our focus on following Jesus. That is not the gospel. It's really important. You should do it. But it is not the gospel. That's imperative. That's not indicative. You know what liberals have been doing? And I don't, again, don't mean political liberals. I mean theological liberals have been doing. You know, kind of the the main thrust is we need to stop preaching atonement. We need to stop preaching indicative. We need to stop preaching substitutionary death of Christ. What we need to do is emphasize the teachings of Jesus. And what we need to do is emphasize how important it is to follow Jesus instead. It's a sign of death. I'm not arguing we should follow Jesus, but we should follow Jesus having believed in Him for righteousness, having come to Him on His terms based upon His substitutionary atonement. And you know what? Now that I have a new life and a new heart, I do want to follow Him and I'm supposed to follow Him. But when you confuse the two, you're just helping us edge one more step toward being a dead church. Remember, Jesus said many things, but remember one of those kind of ultimate purpose statements in John, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he, remember the text when he said, I did not come to serve, excuse me, I did not come to be served, I came to serve, and then he gives the ultimate act of service, his ultimate purpose statement, and to give my life as a ransom for many, for substitutionary atonement, indicative, because he did it. And I get all exercised about this and, and, and perspire about it, and I'm just going to keep doing it until I perspire, uh, finally. Because it's happening all around. Pastors that go to the right schools that should know better is principle this, principle that, ways to do this, ways to do that, and there's no mention of the indicative. This is bad. I could give you another Machen quote regarding this. Uh, I won't, but he mentions it in another one of his books as well. Uh, But I will stay away from that for now for the sake of time. But essentially he says, you know what? Historical Protestant liberalism, it's been about following Jesus to the detriment of believing in the work of Jesus that he did for us. Don't forget about the cross. Cross-less morality is liberalism. And it means the death of the church. Okay, one more, since you asked. We're assuming the gospel. There are signs of gospel assumption, if you will. A lot of different signs. Just one more sign for today, and that would be self-centeredness. Maybe we could call it, since we're all self-centered, let's call it unchecked self-centeredness. Tolerance of selfishness. And I would like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 for this. Selfishness is wrong. Selfishness is bad. But particularly in the context of the local church, Philippians 1 is addressing the issue. And I'll tell you as you're turning to Philippians 1 that I didn't care about unity. I didn't care much about unity as a new Christian. Here's me as a new Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian now. Tell me everything I need to know, like in five minutes. 
You know, I mean, I just wanted to know theology. I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to know everything I could possibly get my hands on. I wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to do all for all the wrong reasons. I just, I knew that it was about knowing these things and then I could do these things and then I could live my life, so on and so forth. But I didn't care about unity. And then I became a pastor. And all of a sudden, I'm looking for unity texts. I'm like, cheapers, creepers. These people don't get along with each other. And you know what? When they don't get along with each other and I'm part of the problem, we can't do what we're supposed to do. And this is Philippians 1. Philippians 1 is going to call us to be so committed to the gospel that we get along with each other, no matter what our differences are, no matter what our, our, our personal conflicts are. We have to look beyond it because we're about something bigger than, how about this? You. We're about something bigger than me. This has been my, my friend and confidant text since becoming a pastor, and you haven't heard the end of Philippians one twenty-seven from me, I know. Look at one twenty-seven. He says, only conduct yourselves. Some of you might have a translation that doesn't start with the word only. I would just be um, Philippians one twenty seven only. If your, yours doesn't say it, write it in the margin. Uh, God won't strike you dead. I've tried it before. Trust me. Only. The Greek word is manon, M-O-N-O-N. It's there. Trust me. Only. It's a marker. It's like a star saying, hey, all right, red alert. There's one important thing. And if you don't listen to anything else I tell you in the letter, listen to this. Greater men than I have has, have said, let's repent of making, Philipp- making Philippians about all of these other secondary matters. Philippians is about this. It's about this matter of the gospel and striving together being unified for the sake of the gospel. So let's see, what does he say? Only conduct yourselves. This one thing you need to do if you're a Christian in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, the Apostle Paul says, I will hear of you. That you are, number one, standing firm. That's a unity emphasis. In one spirit, number two, that's a unity emphasis. With one mind, number three, that's a unity emphasis. Striving together, number four, that's a unity emphasis. For what? For the faith of the gospel. One of my favorite, very, 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 very favorite texts. Writing to a local church, saying... This one thing, manon, you need to get along. You need to get along, lock arms, not just to get along. That's not the point. That's not the end in and of itself. It is for the furtherance of the gospel. This is a great exhortation. This is very helpful. But when we, for, we forget about the priority of the gospel and how the gospel is vital, the gospel is of first importance... What we do when we assume the gospel is we tolerate trivial division. It's a sign. When we're getting hung up and getting slowed down because, you know what, I said something that offended you and then you said something that offended me and, you know, and it's just all this personality kind of thing. You looked at me the wrong way and blah, 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 blah. And it's a sign that we're assuming the gospel. 
We're taking time away from what we're supposed to be striving together to do. And we're just self-consumed. And what should happen is somebody should catch wind of it and get in my face and put their finger right here and say, Hey, Pat. Hello. You're forgetting about the gospel. Pat, I just want you to know this isn't about you and your pastoring and all the stuff that you want to have or I don't care what. It's not about you. It's about the gospel. So get over your issue because we have a gospel to proclaim and a gospel to defend and a gospel to promote. And when we don't do this, it's a sign we're assuming the gospel. When we allow these little itty-bitty you know, things to go on and then they become big things, we're just showing that we've lost sight of the main thing is what's happening. And I'm part of this. I know I'm a self-centered person, fallen individual. Now let me say it. So are you. So it's going to happen. By the way, at the end of the book, you've got the two ladies who are fighting, Yodius and Syntyche. And they're just basically, in effect, told to get over it. Get over it. It's not about you. It's not about the fact that this woman thinks your mom gave you a weird name because it is weird. Just get over it. You know? Just It's not an issue because it's not about you anyway. It's not about me anyway. But it happens, though. I know it does. I have to preach this to myself. I have to preach it in my house. You know, well, so-and-so, you know, they didn't call me or... You know, I thought they were going to call me and they didn't call me and should I call them and they might be mad at me and I don't know if they really are, blah, 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 you know. You know what? The great thing is, it's not about that relationship. Assume the best and get your eyes on what's most important. And this isn't not to say that when I legitimately offend you and sin against you, we shouldn't deal with it and there's a biblical way to deal with it, we should. This isn't license for us all just to act as selfishly as we want because we're about the gospel. You're so immature, just get over it. <laughs> it's not that. But it is about saying, you know what? Get over it. You think about war. Some war you can think about anywhere you want and the battle is raging and you're trying to you know defend the hill and there you are and, and, and you're, you're you're there working hard striving together he's using that kind of imagery and there you are standing firm in one spirit and all of a sudden you know you're not going to take time out and, and all of a sudden the platoon leader comes along you or whatever and you're like i'm um, just stop for a minute um you know last week in the mess hall those guys they didn't include me in their conversation and i feel hurt what is your problem? We're at war for crying out loud, right? You're so pathetic. Get over it. But we don't see that because war is grand and it's serious and lives are at stake. Well, let me chime in and say, for crying out loud, this is the church. What we're about is far more serious than a war. If you don't like military examples, he's also using uh, uh, sporting uh, verbiage in here. So let's think about the Super Bowl from last week. You know, here, 
here we are, it's the, you know, getting toward the end of the game and everything's intense and everything's exciting, exciting, you know, and, and all of a sudden, so, so one of the defensive linebackers, you know, has to call a timeout and go over to the coach, stop everything. Uh, coach, you know, I'm having a hard time focusing on what I'm supposed to do here because, you know, uh, the defensive linemen, they didn't invite me out last week and I really felt hurt and, uh, you're like, you are such a pathetic individual, you know? You're so pathetic. How stupid. It's the Super Bowl. Well, they would never do that because they see how big the issue is because they're not assuming anything. They know they're playing in the Super Bowl. And they have one agenda. Well, here we are. It's part of church that's been given the privilege and opportunity to exalt and promote Christ above every else, above everything else. This is easy to understand in theory, I know. What's going to be harder is, you know, we're going to leave today and somebody's, you know, not going to look at me the right way and I'm going to go home and I'm going to be sad and then I have to deal with it and apply it, you know? And I'm going to want you to invite me with you to go on your vacation. And we're, you know, I, I hope we get to do that. And we're going to get matching T-shirts. And we're going to go see the, you know, the rocks and the president's faces. And you're not going to invite me. And then I'm going to be sad. And, and then I'm just going to leave the church. So I pray for me that I can apply this. See, it's just stupid. Say, Pat. It's not about you. Is there heresy involved? Is there sin involved? Well, let's deal with those issues. Otherwise, welcome to the church. We're not trying to win the Super Bowl. We're not trying to win a war. We're trying to exalt the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's a much bigger cause than any single one of us. And to that, I say, yeah! Maybe we won't be a dead church for at least another year. You know, <laughs> maybe 10. I don't know if we can get this in our minds and not assume the gospel. This is fantastic. Exalting Christ, exalting Christ, exalting Christ. That's what it's about. And assuming nothing. Taking nothing for granted. It's about that. Let's be done for this morning. Thank you for your good attentiveness. See, do you feel good? I just thanked you for listening to my sermon. See, I'm, I'm getting nicer. <laughs> And more sarcastic. (laughs) Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for today. And thank you for the fact that we can laugh about these things. But these are also things that some of us cry about. Cry because we feel hurt or cry because we're so frustrated because our focus is not on Christ as it should be. May He be our consuming passion. Lord, give us eyes to see these things. Give us softened hearts to not just live for ourselves but to live for His glory and for His honor and to be thrilled beyond measure to be a part of something greater and bigger than we ever could be individually. That is our desire. Lord, thank You that we can share in a meal today, many of us, and we can have good fellowship. Lord, help us to love each other and to be kind to each other for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray, amen.